0: Hello, welcome to the Best Speech Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Pacione, and this week we have my friend, Ian Cron. I cannot say enough about Ian. The background here, years ago, I helped Ian when his book, The Road Back to You, came out. I helped him with the speech. I think one of the things I love about my job is I I often get paid to learn something that is so interesting, and in this case, changed my life, And and that was the Enneagram. So in this podcast... Ian will give us, and Ian's like the best in the world for this, like probably actually the very best in the world, to give an overview of the Enneagram types. So that takes up like the first half of the episode. Then we'll talk more about speaking. So we'll talk about caring for your audience, which for Ian, he's presented this information thousands of times. So finding a way to care for your audience anyway. And then we'll talk a little bit about speech times. Ian tells us why he never wants to speak on a Friday night officially, here's the bio for Ian Cron. So I'm supposed to call him Ian Morgan Cron to sound more professional, but he's a, uh, he's a bestselling author. He's a psychotherapist and Enneagram teacher an Episcopal priest. And some of you already know this. He's the host of the popular podcast Typology. His books include the novel Chasing Francis. Then he's got a memoir called, this is like the greatest title in the world, Jesus, my father, the CIA and me. And then his book on the Enneagram is called The Road Back to You. And then shortly after this podcast releases, he's got another book that I'm sure is going to be great. It's called The Story of You, an Enneagram Journey to Becoming Your True Self. Ian has become a dear friend. He's the best. I look forward to presenting this interview to you. Let's take it away. This is our guest, Ian Morgan Crane. Hello, everyone. I'm here with my good friend, Ian Cron. Probably a lot of people think crone. Do you get that much? Oh, yeah, for sure. I remember before I met you, I had a whole list of puns associated with crone. Crone of arc. Oh, dear. Uh, bad to the crone. And then and then it was Cron. And I was just left with Kron solo. Okay, I'll move beyond <laughs> Move beyond this. But hey, this is Ian Cron, my good friend, Ian, who I've worked with before. Ian, I think, is... You know, there's always that expression, like, someone's one in a million... Which, when you think about how many people are in the world, it's not as big a compliment as people want it to be. But Ian, like, there are not very many Ian Cron's out there. Ian Cron, welcome to the podcast.
1: I'm delighted to be here, Mike.
0: <laughs> I wanted to have Ian on for a couple of reasons. Number one, Ian and I have worked together. He is just a gem of a human being. I loved working with him. We'll talk about that a little bit. Also, because Ian knows the Enneagram inside and out. You've heard it on certain episodes where people will just say, like, well... You know, I turn into a five at certain times, and then if if you don't know what the enneagram is, like this just sounds like, what is this code that everybody's talking about? So, Ian, Ian, uh, I've occasionally had people ask me about my friend who invented the e- enneagram. To be clear, Ian did not invent it, <laughs> but Ian, let's uh, let's start with the world of the enneagram. So, give us a quick introduction what the enneagram is, and then we'll go through the uh, the nine different types.
1: Yeah, so the Enneagram is this ancient personality typing system that teaches there are nine basic personality types in the world, one of which we gravitate toward and adopt in childhood as a way to uh, feel safe, to protect ourselves, and to navigate the world of relationships, And as you mentioned, there are these nine types and uh, we can, we can do like literally a 100,000 foot flyby.
0: Let's do it.
1: I could write a hundred pages on each of these types without doing research. So, um, but I'll just give you a a high altitude sort of pass. So ones are called the improvers. I used to call them the perfectionists, but. I yep. got so much pushback from them because it's the only term of the nine, the only signifier that sounds a little uh, pejorative, right?
0: Ooh, good word.
1: So, um, so I call them the improvers because that's kind of their superpower. One of the things I want to say about each Enneagram type is they, they have an unconscious motivation that powerfully influences how they habitually and predictably act, think, or feel from moment to moment on a daily basis. And so the unconscious motivation of the one is a compulsive need to perfect themselves, others, and the world. Twos are called the helpers.
0: Oh, can I rewind for a second? Yeah. Just a quick thing. I don't know if you said this, but the thing that I love about the Enneagram, that people, I think sometimes get a little confused because when I introduce it to people, people equate it to Myers-Briggs or something like that. What's great about the Enneagram is it's behavior based. It's not on, output right so is that wait is that not true well let me just or motivation based not based on
1: right so yeah. you know all of us have think, think of it this way think of the there's a water line of consciousness right everything above the water line is things that we're aware of right like we know why we do certain things and we're consciously aware of them right yeah but there's material underneath the waterline of consciousness, all kinds of drives and motivations uh, and, and unconscious material that we are not aware of that's driving the way we act, think and feel. One of the, the beautiful gifts of the Enneagram is it is it helps us to bring that unconscious material into conscious awareness. OK, yep. like where we start to know what are the things that are really driving the way I act, think and feel. And when you bring that material into conscious awareness, now you have the power and the agency to begin to work on them more deeply. Right. So when I talk about unconscious motivations, that's what I'm talking about. Mm. Like this is what's driving behavior underneath the waterline of consciousness. And that's super important because. Like Carl Jung, the psychiatrist, genius, once said, what's unconscious owns us, right? And that's really true, right? It's like, that's the stuff that has this, it's it's autonomous. As long as it you don't know about it, it's acting right outside of your awareness. It's like driving you around without your understanding why.
0: Right. And that's why, so one's the improver. My wife is an improver. Mm-hmm. I have often described her to people, I say this, I say, in high school, she would have been the person that raised her hand and reminded the teacher to assign homework. And Mm -hmm. it it wasn't, that would not have been a conscious thing. She would have thought to herself, this is how to improve the situation.
1: She would have thought that to herself, (laughs) because then (laughs) it would have been in conscious awareness. Oh, right, right, right. Her brain, her brain would have. She just, unconsciously, she would have felt a compulsive need to perfect The situation, the teacher, right? So there's this unconscious need to perfect themselves, others, in the world.
0: Yeah, and that, and that goes to real world issues too. So it's not it's not just little things like the classroom. Okay, I interrupted you. You were trying to fly by, and then I turned into a big thing. So So we went through once.
1: So those are ones. Uh, Twos uh, are called the helpers, and these are warm, supportive, caring, giving human beings. Who have this unconscious compulsive need to be liked really that's that's at its core they they Mm -hmm. want to be liked appreciated and approved of right you know these are people who from the time they go to bed to the time and to the time they wake up in the morning at both hours they just think about relationships you know what i mean like they are the most interpersonal number on the enneagram all right you know when they're when they're healthy people their help is altruistically driven, right? It's it's just helping for the sake of helping. When they're unconscious, right, when they're not doing really well, what it becomes is strategic. They begin to give in a strategic, calculated way. And in, in, in unconscious, this is all unconscious stuff they're doing. In other words, they are silently and unconsciously operating in a quid pro quo manner it's like i will take care of you and your needs uh, with the assumption that you will take care of my needs right, without right. my having to come direct out directly asking for them
0: i always remember the speech we worked on do you remember the example that you used for that
1: oh um, oh you mean about scooter the dog
0: <laughs> yes
1: yeah so i knew uh too she she had a terrier a scooter right and um Just died unexpectedly in the night. Heartbroken, the person was heartbroken. And not two hours uh, after this person discovered Scooter had died, he gets he gets a knock on the door, and there was uh, his now self-identified Enneagram Two standing at the door, holding a Jack Russell Terrier puppy (laughs) with a red bow taped to its head, and. She just learned about Scooter's demise right, from mutual friends and says, I know exactly what Jake needs, and I'm going to, quote, unquote, help him. You know what I mean? (laughs) And and so sometimes their helping misses the mark, right? But it's this compulsive need to help. And I guarantee you what what she was thinking was, I'm going to take care of Jake with the unconscious assumption or belief or hope that he will meet my needs yeah. when the time comes and I, I won't have to ask for it directly.
0: And then the other end of that, I remember you posted on your Instagram at one point, you were at some sort of rally and there was <laughs> there was someone there who had brought water for people oh, who were, who were oh, at a rally. Oh, I can
1: tell, yeah. you know, after a while, I man, when you work with the Enneagram long enough, sometimes you can spot behaviors and I tend to try and have some humility around this because I could be wrong, but where you go, mm, that smells like a two. And I've even done this on purpose where I have coughed while giving a talk. I go, <coughs> like that. And the first person who gets up to get me water eventually, I'm like, are you a two? And invariably they say yes and the room starts laughing. You know, it's like a great setup.
0: Uh, so good. All right. Threes.
1: Threes are called the performers. Uh, and these people are goal-oriented, ambitious, driven. They love a to-do list. It's similar to ones. Ones love to do lists too as well, right? For a whole different set of reasons. But the three's unconscious motivation is a need to succeed, to appear successful, and to avoid failure at all costs, right? So three see a world in which people value others for what they do, not for who they are inside. So they're just out there trying to crush it. And in a way, what what threes want is love, but they settle for achievement, mm. right? And uh, so, you know, they read David Allen's book, Getting Things Done. They're they're running around uh, just trying to kill it all day long. They're, one of the things that's interesting about threes is they have this crazy talent. They can shapeshift, right, like a chameleon, like, right. just like change their colors in, in order to win the admiration of the crowd. Right. They can just walk into a room, get like intuitively know what does this what kind of person does this group value and love? And then they shapeshift into that person. Right. right. Yeah. So they make great salespeople, politicians, you know, whatever, you know, uh, person that they, they just sense the, the would, would win the admiration of others, right? Like like twos want approval, right, and appreciation. Yeah. Threes want admiration. Those are two different animals.
0: Right. I always felt like uh, Jerry Maguire, the movie Jerry Maguire, Jerry is a great transformation character of a three. Yes. As best we can assess movie characters, great transformation of a three.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. What about fours? Type
1: that's near to your heart. Yeah, near to my heart. I'm a four. So they're known as the individualists. Fours believe that there's something essential missing in their core makeup, right? that everyone else seems to have and that renders them unworthy of love and relationship. So it, it makes sense then that their unconscious motivation reveals itself in really their unconscious need to belong, you know, to find their place in the world and their strategy to win that sense of belongingness is to be special and unique. Right because they believe that the only way they can recapture or compensate for their missing piece is by cultivating a unique image that distinguishes them from everybody else. Right. I laugh about the story when um, I was at a dinner party and I was seated next to a guy that everybody wanted to know his type. Right. And he, he just (laughs) was like wearing a like a, crazy black hat and black clothes and he was kind of hunched (laughs) over and being broody and you know and i i thought he was a four we got to talking about it and i said well you know i think the patron saint of enneagram fours is johnny depp's character edward scissorhands right and he just looked at me with these big eyes and his just his head dropped and then he he uh pulled up his shirt sleeve and there was a giant tattoo of edward scissorhands oh no no On his arm, and I was like, "You can't make this up, right? You just (laughs) cannot make this up." And and it just reinforced for me how accurate the enneagram is. Mm. You know, I've I've seen this play out in a million different ways.
0: It's incredible, yeah. And it's funny because you talk about it that way, and it's this ancient thing and nine types, and it can sound like Indiana Jones or something to an outsider. And then you get into it, like, "Oh no, that's that's pretty accurate." Yeah,
1: you know, it's interesting though, Mike. I'm working with a Research psychologist, right now, developing a new Enneagram assessment test. And I decided to spend a lot of money and call on real experts in what's called psychometrics. So, those are people who put together psychological tests for a living, right? And to put this one together so it's going to be the most accurate, scientific based, right? Sort of science, maybe sort of evidence based um, assessment. And this guy just wrote a major paper for the most prestigious psycholo- world of psychology journal right on the enneagram and its its accuracy and usefulness in modern psychology so it's this is not it this is not like an indiana jones you know come out with tablets from the mountain you know it's like <laughs> no this is being shown to have real scientific efficacy
0: and speaking of scientific efficacy fives People who love scientific efficacy, right? They
1: do, yes. So fives are called the investigators. They're innovative. They're analytical. They're intensely private. Others sort of kind of experience them as being emotionally distant. And they have an insatiable appetite to know and understand how everything works, right? And they're unconsciously motivated by a need to conserve energy. Uh, to gather information to fend off feelings of inadequacy and ineptitude, right? So these are information junkies, uh, and they withdraw into the mind where they can carefully observe life, collect knowledge, new information, and interesting facts to avoid feeling overwhelmed by the world, right? So as you can imagine, you know, like the worst thing that ever happened to a five is the Internet. (laughs) Because they go down that wormhole, man. They'll be there all night long, like just hoovering information, like a, like a shop back, man. They're just sucking it up everywhere they can. They retreat into privacy a lot just to recharge, right? They like, you know, every phone call, every handshake, every uh, unexpected encounter with another person just seems to cost fives more than other people, like relation. Mm-hmm. It just drains their tanks, it depletes them, right? Uh, and so, you know, the the, it, the internet may be really fun for the Enneagram five. The problem is, is it removes them from the very thing they need most, which is relationships, right? right. It's a way out of like just dealing with the world of, of relationships. Um, they're wonderful human beings. Some of my favorite, you know, friends are fives. I, I love them.
0: I've often described one of my old roommates, Will, I lived downstairs. He lived upstairs. He would just be upstairs all day. What's this guy doing up there? Discovered the Enneagram. And it totally made sense because Will, I mean, Will's the type of person who would, you know, gets a new printer and he, he reads the instruction booklet. Right? Oh, yeah. Like those are Enneagram 5s. Yeah. Like, excited by that information. They're the
1: little kids. They're the little kids who are always taking radios <laughs> apart. They just wanted to know how it worked. You know what I mean? You know, like I said, they're, all these types are beautiful when they're healthy and they're self-aware when they're not, they're just on autopilot doing this stuff. Right. And, you know, sadly, when you're on autopilot doing this stuff, you will repeatedly do things that actually prevent you. You think they're going to get you what you want, but they Mm. actually prevent you from Mm. getting what you want. You know, um, they, they thwart you at every turn, but, We just keep going back to the watering hole. This time, this time, this (laughs) is going to work.
0: Uh, All right. How about sixes? Sixes vary greatly, right? Right. Sixes, you you say, is the the most popular? Is that accurate?
1: Well, I mean, Enneagram teachers speculate that there are more sixes than any other type in the general population. And there are fewer fours than any other type in the general population, which thrills (laughs) fours because it makes them special and unique, right? So it just it just uh, feeds the fuel, the fire, you know? So sixes are called the loyalists. And what motivates these folks is a need to feel safe, secure, and supported. Um, they're worst case scenario th- thinkers who see a world in which disaster can strike at any moment. They're always scanning the horizon, looking for potential threats, and then making plans For what they'll do when catastrophe strikes and all this is in service to feeling safe. You know, if I'm ready, if I'm prepared, uh, I won't get hurt. Right. So I have a friend who's a six and he likes to say that he suffers from pre-traumatic stress (laughs) disorder, which I love. Absolutely love it. Sometimes they're called the devil's advocates because they're kind of the first people to spot what could go wrong in a plan, in a project, or in some undertaking. And uh, I worked with a, a company in Silicon Valley, and it was – this is a funny story. They were like 20 kids, like in their 30s. And some venture capital firm had just dropped like $50 million on them because they had cool a like, cool yeah. product. I went to work with them and they had a seven. We'll talk about sevens in a minute, but they're enthusiasts. And, and um, this guy said, you know, I would get a whiteboard out once a week and I would just dream team stuff. I would just throw it and they would have crazy aspirations like, you know, we're going to become the next Apple, or the next Google, and we're going to do this and we're going to take this hill and we're going to do that. And he said, you know, everybody's frothing at the mouth. They're so excited, except for this one guy. He said, this guy would just, at the end of my presentation and getting all these ideas from people and everyone is pumped. He just raised his hand and everybody in the room mm. knew and all the oxygen would leave the room and he'd go, yeah, <laughs> that's really an interesting idea, but I'm, I'm wondering, I think we should wait until the fourth quarter of next year when we have more cash flow. Otherwise, this is going to bankrupt us. <laughs> And it took all the oxygen out of the room. And the, this kid said to me, he "Goes, you know, I'm thinking of firing that guy." And I almost took him by the lapels and said, "Listen to me. You cannot fire this guy. He is the only person standing between you and an SEC, <laughs> you know, violation board. You know, he's going to prevent you from driving this thing off the cliff. He is the only guy who has the courage to tap the brakes on you in the room." And, uh, I had to sit with that six and coach him on how to present yeah. that stuff without, you know, sounding like such a downer. Down. Yeah. Like, you know, like a... Yeah. And I had to teach everybody else. Like, this guy's your best friend. Like, do not get rid of this guy. And he was the CFO, which was great. It's a great job for a six. It's like, you know, he makes sure that everybody gets paid and he has already seen in advance what uh-huh. could go wrong. Uh-huh. So that's a guy you want him in risk management. Yep. You know, they, they just see what could go wrong. They're, they're wonderful, wonderful human beings, you know, love 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 sixes.
0: All right. And then sevens, seven is what I thought I was until I read your book. And then I said, no, that's not me. What's a seven?
1: Well, you know, if you think about it, sixes cope with fear, with pessimism, right? At their worst. And sevens deal with their fear through optimism. And so they're people who are always planning the next great adventure. They're, fantasizing about a future filled with unlimited possibilities Uh, they are trying to cram as much interesting entertaining and fun experiences into the present moment as is humanly possible right so they're wonderful but what motivates them is a need to avoid difficult and painful feelings right so and what i mean i mean like the feeling of stuck boredom disappointment sadness maybe depression, anxiety, whatever it is. They they do not want to feel these feelings. You and I know that these feelings have a lifespan, right? It's like they come in like a weather pattern Mm -hmm. and they blow out, right? For some reason, sevens feel like if they sort of go into the center of any of these feelings, if they allow these feelings to occupy them, that they'll never get out, they'll just never get out of them. So it's like they're always like skating in front of the cracks, you know, as fast as they can. And so all this, like, I love what my friend Richard Rohr says about Sevens. He says, they want to imagine a life where there's no good Friday and it's (laughs) Easter all the time. (laughs) You know what I mean? So uh, I have a friend of mine, Bob off, right? So I'm I'm, I'm at Bob's house one time and we're in the backyard and the sun was going down. I think we were standing on a dock and uh, we're just enjoying – the setting sun. And he turns to me at one point, he goes, you know, Ian, if I if I ever saw a shark, I would just tell myself it was a dolphin (laughs) with teeth. Now that is classic seven, you know, behavior. It's it's like they will reframe negatives into positives because they just don't want to like they 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 don't want to experience the same emotions you or I would feel were we faced with the same situation. So it's like, they'll just like in a heartbeat, like turn a negative into a positive. They'll turn a shark into a dolphin in a heartbeat.
0: One you of the know? things I've said about sevens when they're presenting is I can tell a seven when they are presenting because they have no issues with going off topic because that's really fun for them. It's like, Ooh, a new memory. Oh, let me talk about that memory. Let me talk about yes. growing up. And for people yeah. in the audience, you're like, w- what does this have to do with anything? I think for sevens, I mean, you're the expert here, obviously, but I think for sevens, it's just really easy to avoid, 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 always doing the thing that's fun instead of the thing that's actually necessary. What about type eights?
1: Well, the challengers. So challengers are aggressive, sometimes combative, uh, notoriously blunt people who who can start an argument in an (laughs) empty house. You know what I'm saying? Like they're just... You know, um, they love to challenge. Particularly, they love to challenge authority and people who try to place limitations on them. What drives them is a need to assert strength and control over the environment and others to mask vulnerability, right? Tenderness. So, like my mother is an eight on the enneagram, and I'll just tell you a a quick story. Uh, When the pandemic broke out, my mom, ninety-three years old, she lives in assisted living. She she smoked for seventy-five years. (laughs) And the only reason I had to talk her, I had to say, look, mom, you can't, you can't smoke. And her geriatrician said, you know, you can't smoke because your oxygen tank will blow <laughs> up and it will be, it will prove to be very uncomfortable for you and all the other people in the bingo hall. You know what I mean? It's like, don't, you can't smoke anymore. Right. So, so anyway, I call her up because, you know, the pandemic is just running rampant through nursing homes and assisted living facilities. And I said, has COVID attacked you yet? And she, without a second, she goes, it wouldn't dare. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just sort of that classic, i I'm invincible. You know, no one would mess with me, including a virus, you know? And, and so I I said to her, what makes you think that you're immune? And she goes, my white blood cells would kick its ass. (laughs) 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 You know? So it's this, again, it's this unconscious motivation though, to mask vulnerability and tenderness. And you can see where that just gets in the way of relationships and where like in a corporate setting, everything I'm describing will, let me put it this way. It it helped you as a little person survive the world. But when you drag those behaviors into adulthood, they just work against you, man. And uh, you know, I've, I've, saved a couple of jobs by helping people understand their Enneagram type and to start to manage, to regulate, to mitigate some of these behaviors that they brought with them from childhood into adulthood so they could just be more self-aware, thoughtful people. Sevens aren't going to stop being optimists. Fives aren't going to stop being interested in knowledge. You know, threes aren't going to stop, you know, being interested in achievement, getting stuff done, productivity. I don't want them to. But what I want them to do is stop over-relying on those motivations, bring them into awareness so that they don't depend on them too much to get things that can't be gotten through them, you know, uh, because they hurt them when they get to be adults. All
0: right. I'm ready for nines. And what I was going to say is uh, tread carefully. Nines, I'm a nine. Ian's wife is a nine. Nines are people who... um, you know, it's one through nine. It's easy to run over the time that you've allotted for something. So nines get shortchanged. And they're also the people who are least likely to be angry that they got shortchanged. Ian, can you uh, explain nines?
1: Yeah, that's right. And actually, you know, when I teach, they're the second number I teach.
0: Oh, because you go eight, nine, one. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I do. So only when I'm doing them in order like this do they get last.
0: Yeah, but every time I hear you on a podcast, it's like you and Don Miller, and it's like, oh, nines. I can tell that Don... He's in his head he's like, We have 20 seconds to do nines. Go nines. Nines and nines, we're fine with that. We're fine with that.
1: Yeah, right, because you don't think <laughs> your presence matters very much. Like, you know, it's to be expected. Well, nines are called the sweethearts of the Enneagram. And I know that from personal experience, because they're they're so quick to love, they're they're slow to judge, they're so easygoing. They're don't rock the boat, go with the flow, don't upset the apple cart. Kinds of people. But their unconscious motivation, what's driving this behavior, is is this this need to maintain connection with others, uh, to avoid conflict, which is a major theme, and to protect their inner peace at, at all costs, right? So, in order to accomplish that, what nines will do is put aside their own desires, preferences, opinions, and dreams to merge with those of another person or of a group, right? If if eights have more energy than any other number on the Enneagram, nines have the least, right?
0: We love naps, love naps, pizza.
1: They do, they, my daughter loves, yeah, they love pizza. My wife's of nine likes to say that nines start off slow and <laughs> then they taper off. <laughs> that is sometimes you know? true. Yeah, so, but these these folks, and that's not true sure. of every nine. I, I know a lot of nines who work really, really hard The problem is, is that they're distractible and they often end up doing just sort of mindless Mm -hmm. busy work that's not really essential to the moment. Like threes are really focused people. Eights can be super focused. They're laser-like, but nine's attention is really kind of diffuse, right? It's sort of all over. It's like, you know, they often find themselves just doing whatever presents itself to them in the moment, you know, like... I know that if I, if my wife is working on some really important task, and I just walk through the room and I say, "You know, we need to water the flowers," she will get up and go water the flowers. Like, and I'll be like, "You know, you could say I'll get to that after I'm finished with this." No, because
0: we're nervous; we're never going to remember if we don't do it.
1: Well, well, there's that, but also it's 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 also because you know nines have trouble prioritizing. Yeah. That's one issue. Uh, But another issue is, is that they're so used to downplaying their priorities and putting everyone else's in Mm -hmm. front of theirs. And, you know, I think the other thing with nines is that they are so worried about conflict, anything that would disturb relationship, that they just kind of go with the flow, even about small things, you know, even about small things. And, but, you know, again, when all these types are healthy and self-aware, they're fantastic. When they are unhealthy and lack self-awareness, they just bang guardrail to guardrail mm-hmm. through life, you know, just kind of like robotically. Like they're just lost in the trance of their yep. behavior. The same way that we kind of fall into, you know, it's like when you pass an exit on the highway because you're lost in thought. It's like we just, you know, just kind of roll on mechanistically. And that's problematic for every single So life.
0: on that note, I was on your podcast, I think it was two... Yeah, it would have been about two years ago. And I wrote a PDF, uh, public speaking and the Enneagram freebie. People can download it. I'll put it in the show notes. With nines, one of the things that I did write was, listen, your instinct is going to be to not have a point of view. But when you're presenting, the thing the audience needs almost more than anything else is for you to have a point of view. So have your point of view, stick to it. And then the, the trap that nines can fall into is present 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 and you've given yourself that little pep talk have a point of view have a point of view have a point of view gets to the q a you feel like it's over you're like ah, but you <laughs> you still need to have a point of view when it comes to q a so here's yes here's my question for you ian so this was a good example we could talk about this i mean you could give six hours off the top of your head on the enneagram how many times have you presented the enneagram from stage or from zoom i mean it's got to be close to a thousand
1: hundreds yeah i I can't even so
0: for people who are giving a presentation over and over and over again like what's what's a tip you have when you could just go through autopilot on all the numbers or all the different sections of the speech
1: yeah well you know what's interesting about speaking one of the things I which I don't think people talk often enough about is if you don't care about your audience, then you will be of little use to them. You, you really, I dare to say, even love the people you speak to, right? You may not know them, but to really feel like what I have to say will positively move the needle in their lives. And I care about them. I want their lives to be better. And that's why I'm here. So it's not just to get the money, it, it's not just to have something to do, uh, it's not to win. Yeah, their or for applause, glory. Yeah, right. It, it, or for glory. It's really because if you don't get up, they'll smell it. You know, they they'll smell it. Like this guy's just here for the the check. When really, I tried, and and I honestly say that for me, that's not hard for me to do. Like I, but but for others, I think they have to remind themselves, I am here for one reason. Right to persuade, to improve, um, to what whatever your your goal is, right? But but hopefully to move people in a direction of Mm -hmm. positive change. Mm -hmm. And if you don't care about them, don't go. (laughs) Just just don't hurt them and yourself by doing
0: it. Do you you have spoken uh, the amount of time you have spent on stages, whether it's at at a church in the corporate setting, wherever. Is a, is a pretty big number of hours. Like, do you still get nervous or, or what makes you nervous versus not?
1: Well, I don't get nervous per se. If I do, it's, very, you know, it simmers mm-hmm. real low, right? In part because I know this yeah. material cold. Secondly, the, the times I do get nervous is when the stakes are high. Uh, you and I worked on uh, my doing that leader cast event. The book had, been out for I don't know a year or something like that and was really kind of taken off and um, there were I don't know 8,000 10,000 people in the room Uh, it was in a small arena in in uh, Atlanta but there were 140,000 people live streaming Uh the event right so there were cameras flying all over the place and jumbotrons and a big set you know whatever Um, and I knew that if I if I crushed it what it would do for the book and what I was trying to do in the world, it would be really, really big. And if I sucked, it was really going to hurt my efforts, right? It, that is a
0: lost opportunity. Yeah.
1: It's a huge lost opportunity. So I was nervous about that, you know. Also, there was a rota of really impressive speakers that went before me, right? And were coming after me. So I either had to bring my A game to, you know, to match their level of expertise or you know, the comparison game for, in everyone's mind was going to be, well, kind right. of a low point <laughs> of the day was that, was that new guy,
0: you know? There's I like, guy talking about that thing. What was it called? The angiogram? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
1: exactly. So I had to, you know, and that's why yeah. I hired you, right? I think it was that and Catalyst, right? Were two big, big conferences that I sort of turned to you to yeah. sort of help me organize stuff. Also because there's a clock running, you know, you got 25 minutes and you cannot go over it. Because there are all kinds of programmatic you know, cameras are running, there's a schedule, there are breaks, you know, you, you, it's sort of a, a known thing among speakers, like don't yeah. ignore the clock. Your client is depending on you. So you could give a great talk in 32 minutes, right? But in their mind, they have forgotten the great talk because of that seven minutes. Right.
0: It was supposed to be, yeah. The moment it goes over 25, that's the, well, this is supposed to be over already. Same feeling oh, yeah. when you were in high school and the teacher went over.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. And not only that, but the clock actually doesn't show you the negative time. So it doesn't, once the clock hits zero, it mm. stays there. So if you go over, you don't know how long you've gone over. So it doesn't go negative one second, negative two seconds. right? It just mm. ends at zero. I wish it would tell you how long you were going over. Cause if you go a minute, okay, no big deal, but you know, time goes on a stage, especially if you're getting a lot of laughter and positive feedback is, you know, you you could go 10 minutes over and not realize that 10 minutes went by because time is not the same on a stage as it is in real life. (laughs) It's, it's (laughs) like the time continuum bends when you're on stage somehow. And like, it just goes by so quickly. Um, which is another thing you have to do, which is discipline yourself to stay on script. Because if you go off on a tangent, which you, I mean, I've taught it so many times. I have so many stories I can tell about each type and they'll get laughs or they'll move people. uh, And uh, you're so tempted in the moment to go off script and go, oh, by the way, you know, and then suddenly eh, you're, you know, you've been speaking like, you know, I don't know, Fidel Castro for like six hours, you know?
0: Well, and it's, it's, it's addictive when people start laughing. In your head, you're like, ooh, let me give you another story about being a three, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Totally, totally, totally. And that's one of the things you helped me with, you know, because I do have a sort of an entertainer's mind. And and so, you know, if you're killing it, if it's working, it's easy if an audience is sort of responding. I, I remember speaking at a huge conference once, and it was right after lunch. And I was throwing everything i knew at the room to wake them up i was telling every funny story i was i was all but like doing gymnastics on the stage you know and uh, i just couldn't mm. get them to wake up you know and sometimes you're in front of a crowd you know this and you could be there's a lot of things that are out of your control right you know who knows what it could be that uh they're tired they just ate they haven't liked the program so far or the speaker before you you know what i mean or whatever these are things that are outside of your control. And, um, you know, you get in front of a room and sometimes it's just flat, you know, you don't know why it's just flat. It's It's not not your fault. fault, Yeah. Right. That's when time goes really slow. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, you cannot wait to get off of that stage. You know, it's like, because it just feels like this is my fault. No matter what I'm doing, it's just not working. When that's not the truth, you may be presenting really well, and you may be giving them great information, and they're just not there.
0: And I I think something else that happens is our litmus test is often humor. Like, are they laughing? Because that's the one thing that you can see, and it's it's basically a proof point. Outside of that, and not everybody has a big smile on their face the whole talk. That doesn't mean that the talk is bombing, right? right? But it's easy to let that affect us. Well,
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, we look for yeah. head nods. We look for laughs. And then there's that, you know, this feeling there's sometimes like this electrical charge just seems to fall on the audience and you mm-hmm. can feel it, man. It's like the cloud of God has descended and you can do no wrong. Right. And it's the greatest feeling ever. By the way, one of the things, too, that, that when I'm approached to speak at something and they're like, okay, it's a weekend-long conference and it's 5,000 people and you're going to do the Friday night slot. And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> nope. Get somebody else. I will not do a Friday night slot because everybody's yeah. exhausted. They've come in from work. They've just flown in. Um, They probably had cocktails at dinner with everybody else because they're, you know, they're seeing people again for the first time in months, their colleagues or whatever. And they get in that room and they are shot, you know. And I'm like, I will not do Friday nights anymore. I will not do right after lunch unless, you know, it's some huge conference and it's like, I got no choice. Right. But I will fight against Friday nights because it's like, the, the probability of getting a flat audience super is high. so much higher. Yeah. Now, Saturday morning is the yeah. awesome. They've had a good night's sleep. They're excited to be there. They're they're really with you now. But Friday night, God. Ah, whew. Ian,
0: with you, I, I have never done more brainstorming with a person. Or maybe let me say that differently. <laughs> when I meet with people one-on-one, there's always a certain amount of, okay, why don't you spend the next five minutes, ten minutes, however long I, however long I give them – Um, Just saying some things out loud. And I'll sit there with post-it notes or whiteboard or whatever. And generally in that time, I would write down, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood of like 30 or 40 different ideas. (laughs) Not with Ian Cron.
1: The room (laughs) was covered in post-its, every wall. We cracked triple digits.
0: Uh, And with you, I, I think the thing that impressed me in working with you was your willingness to do draft after draft to get it right. Now, oh, I will my. say oh, God. that was one of the few times where I, I was actually nervous the day of because up until the night before, we're still it's we're still like switching out stories. Right. But I knew that you were a good presenter. You had so much stage experience. I was not worried about the moment being too big for you.
1: Well, look, in fact, even that morning, I changed something, a fairly major chunk on my way to the event. They sent a car. I'm putting on my shirt. I've just ironed it in my hotel room and I'm like, Oh crap. Oh crap. And I'm starting to rewrite pieces, you know? And so here's the thing. Part of the problem is that the Enneagram has nine types. You have to cover so much. There's so mm-hmm. much you could say about each type and you have to really use every single sentence to yeah. capture the essence of that type. Cause you only have 25 minutes and it's a manic episode you know, if you just have one point, all right, two points, piece of cake, man. But we have to, I got to cover a crap load of territory in a ridiculously short amount of time, right? I mean, I do eight hour workshops all the time on the Enneagram. I could do full weekends. You could do five days on it, right? So that's one reason you know, I'm brainstorming a million things and a million stories, right? Which one is going to best communicate it? And I have t- lots of options. And then the other thing is, I'm a creative. I was a songwriter. I was, you know, so uh, my mind just works that way. I can ideate all day long, you know. And uh, so, sorry for the help. <laughs> there was one call. I'm, there was it one call out. in
0: particular. I don't think I've ever told you this, but this was this was Anza Enneagram Four coming out. The end of the call, I don't remember what we accomplished, but I think it was a call where it was just, it was a lot of ideating and what if we move this here and this here and then our hour is up. One of us has to go. The end of the call, you you said, I got you, didn't I? I got you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it all worked out, Mike. I mean, you know, in fact, I use that yeah. script. For you still are, so, I'm sure. Yeah. You know? Well, also because mm-hmm. it was memorized yeah. eventually, you know? And so, you know, it was, you know, something that I can just do off the top of my head now. It's sort of my stock go-to 25-minute right. deal. And that may sound like I'm shortchanging the world. No, there's a little bit of wiggle room. You know, I'll change this. I'll change that. I'll change the wording here or there. But fact of the matter is, is that everybody's got to have I don't know. You got to have a 25 minute script. You got to have an hour long script. You got to have the four hour. You got to have the eight hour. You know what I mean? Like I just have them for all kinds of like I'm doing this thing in uh, Dallas on Thursday night and they want an hour, like an hour and a half, actually. And so I just know how to organize that material in such a way that it works. You know, in an hour and a half, I'm doing a four hour for a company in Atlanta, in two weeks, and yeah. I know how to do that. You know, it's just you just got to go out and work it, work it, work it, work it, and never stop yeah. working it.
0: And I know? think one of the things that that I took from our experience that is really helpful is uh, okay. You had nine different types, which is a lot to do in 25 minutes. But even if someone only has three. If there is a way to cut to the chase faster with an example versus a lot of words that are talking around it, that is the way to go. And I think that's something mm-hmm. really strong with you. You're talking about, I've got a bunch of stories for each of those. We did a really great job combined of being able to tell the story of a number in a few sentences. And anytime you can do that, that's a win.
1: Yeah, right. Well, that's because you know human beings are storytelling machines. Yeah. And they understand the world through the lens of story, right? They experience their own lives like a movie that's being played out, right? And they're they're as fascinated by where the movie's going as anybody, right? Um, And making decisions that they hope will lead to the happily ever after, you know? And... So that's why I think that's one of the reasons that stories stick mm-hmm. to people more than, than anything else.
0: Um, speaking of the happily ever after, there is, uh, I always loved your call to action from it. So I always ask people, okay, as a result of this talk, what do you want people to do? Ian's talk, so it's the Enneagram, but it's really about self-awareness, right? So I'm like, well, what do you want people to do to get to self-awareness? And I love your call to action, and I still use it to help people understand what I'm asking what a call to action is, your call to action was, I want you to go home, talk to someone you know really well, and say, "What are you not telling me about myself?"
1: Yeah, what do you know about me that I don't know about me?, yeah. but I should.
0: Oh, oh that is a good
1: <laughs> that is a good, good one. Yeah.
0: all right, I know yeah. Ian has to run, so uh, let's fast forward to our perpetual categories here. Number one, if Ian was giving a commencement talk. What would you what would you focus that around? What would the theme of your commencement talk be?
1: Yeah. Well, I think there's the value and the the terrible importance of self-knowledge, really understanding who you are, how important it is to continue to mine or plumb your own depths without without it being sort of navel yeah. gazing, you know, not not being sort of ridiculously narcissistically self-absorbed. But really, to know yourself, to enjoy yourself, and to be of best service in the world. You know, the greatest mystery people have to face every day Mm. is themselves, right? And um, why do I do that? Why do I not do this? Why, you know, it's like we're a mystery to ourselves, and we need to uh, kind of begin to try and solve Mm, the mystery. That's good.
0: All right. Ian Cron speaking tips. So, again, the reminder here. This is something beyond what you would get in a public speaking one-on-one so It's not make eye contact, make sure you use gestures. What's an Ancron speaking tip?
1: Well, I mean, some of them are dumb, <laughs> right? They're just, I mean, they're just basic things, right? Um, so here's one, make sure you wear an outfit that you look great in mm. and feel confident in, right? Because if you want to eliminate as many obstacles, As you can to making a great presentation. I think you taught me this. Like I went out and I had a shirt made. I had, you know, really great shoes and pants. You know, when you walk out there, you want to feel as good as you possibly can.
0: But I remember you were wearing a ball cap too, which I thought, I don't remember if we talked about that ahead of time or not.
1: Yeah, no, I I wear a ball cap because that's what I always wear. Because
0: that's where, yeah, that's where you're comfortable. That makes sense. That's great.
1: You know, but I wore it with a suit uh-huh. jacket and nice pants. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that also was kind of an interesting, though, albeit not terribly original, look. Um, you know, I think I've already mentioned one, which is love your audience. You know, really love them, really care about them, and and keep that at the forefront of your mind, not the paycheck, not you know, how many books this is going to sell or whatever. It it really has to be, I care about them. I want the best for them. I want to change their lives.
0: So find a way to care about them, even if secretly you feel like... Oh yeah,
1: I've worked in companies where I didn't like the company. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm like, I don't like what this company does. And I don't like how they do it. I mean, at least reputation wise. But I go in and I care about the people in that room. And sometimes, by the way, it gives me an opportunity to subtly, and sometimes not too subtly, if I earn capital in the room, I might say some stuff that challenges mm. their culture. And I'll tell them, that's what <laughs> I'm doing right now. I'm, I'm going to challenge your culture. And, I, you know, because I, I kind of figure, well, well, I don't uh-huh. have to come yeah, back yeah. here on Monday morning and, and get fired. <laughs> I mean, like, the, I can just tell the truth as I yeah. see it, you know. You know, I might remind a, a company that uh, their employees are not just, producers, they're people, you know, um, and they have to create a culture in which people can bring their whole self to work. And I've been in companies where I've, I've asked the question, do you see this? Do you see your employees as producers or as people? And, you know, I get yeah. <laughs> lots of answers.
0: Some of them true. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. Some of them true.
0: Our last question okay. Ian, is, is, you know, every guest is meant to tell a story, This can be a personal story. This can be one that you've heard. It can be somebody else's. We're looking for to cap things off. We'd love to hear an Ian Cron story.
1: Well, I do have a story that I'm always, every talk I give, it comes back to me. And I'm always trying to figure out a way to put it in. It doesn't always work, so I don't use it. And I'm like, dang, I wish I could use it because I just love the story, right? It's not a personal story, but it actually is quite personal to me. Because the lesson in it is something that I probably remind myself of three or four times a week. So there was a I don't know the Victorian era when the British were colonizing India.
0: This is such an Ian e. Crown story. Keep going. There,
1: well there was a group of you know I guess military officers who de- upper Echelon military officers who decided they wanted their own golf course. And so they built an 18-hole golf course outside of Calcutta. Right. Or New Delhi. I can't remember which one it was, but, you know, we're talking like in the 19th century and it's like a, oh, all this poverty and stuff and they're building a golf course in the middle of it. Well, anyway, they build it. But what they didn't bake into their calculations when they were building it was the monkeys. So every time they hit a ball down the fairway, a monkey would run out and grab the ball and then run away. <laughs> right. Now, you can imagine they put all this money and effort into building this golf course only to be, like, you know, thwarted by the monkeys, right? So then – so what they did is they, they uh, tried to figure out a way to get rid of the monkeys. So they built walls around the whole golf course. Well, of course, monkeys climb. So they go up the wall and they jump over and they get the ball and they run off. Then they decide they're going to try and trap them in cages and take them, you know, 50 miles away. But there's a lot of monkeys. Like a lot of these monkeys have brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles that will take their place, right? (laughs) And then finally, I think they started shooting them or something. And of course, that that had no effect, right? So they eventually wrote a rule into their rule book. It's just genius, and it says you have to play the ball where the monkey drops it. (laughs) Now the lesson. What? This is a true story. Yeah, true story. Now the thing I love about this story, the lesson is. That is a life lesson, mm. right? Like I, I meet obstacles every day. I mean, I, you know, we run into problems, obstacles and our typical response is things like, this shouldn't happen, why me? Which is a stupid question because the actual question is why not me? We respond with anger, we, we tear our hair out. It's like, whatever, we can fall into, you know, resignation and just sort of rolling over. Whatever it is, right? We Whatever life throws at us. And I'm always like, dude, this is how it is. You got to play the ball where the monkey dropped it. That's just how it goes, right? Don't don't waste your time with all these other thoughts and responses. Just play the ball where the monkey dropped it. And it has served me well over time. That Just that one sentence. Dude, play the ball where the monkey dropped it.
0: See, that even is that I would want in a commencement speech. If sure. you're graduating college, you need to know, hey, the monkey's going to drop the ball in some bad places. You're going to be in the rough. Yeah.
1: Totally. Play the ball where the monkey dropped it, kids. That's all there is to it. You know, Take action, get out there, accept the fact that this is what life has presented you with, and just do your best with it. That's how it goes.
0: Boom. That is great. Ian, you're the best. Hey, where can people find out more about you and what you do?
1: Well, we have so many things going on. Um, they can go to Ian Morgan Cron, that's I-A-N-M-O-R-G-A-N Cron, C-R-O-N dot com. And they can learn about, uh, I've got a new course coming out, which is called Discovering You, which is essentially an introduction to the Enneagram, a seven-hour course. We have a, kind of an Enneagram 201 course called uh, True You. Um, we have uh, an assessment right now called IEQ-9, which is tremendous gosh, we have a typology Institute where you can sign up and get our weekly newsletter and be able to participate in a once a month call with me, you know, with like 50 or hundred oh, other nice. people. So yeah, there's just tons of stuff going on. Go to the website. You can, you can hear all about it.
0: Hey, everybody, this guy knows what he's talking about. If you are at all interested in the Enneagram, check Ian out and check out his work. Ian, thank you so much, my friend. Good to chat with you.
1: Oh, my pleasure, brothers. Hope we talk again soon.
0: Don't you love Ian Cron? Don't you love the Enneagram? Seriously, we hope you love that interview as much as I enjoyed doing it. I should remind you, Ian's new book, The Story of You, releases on December 28th. You can pre-order that right now. IanMorganCron.com is the most direct place. Y'all, I have been Mike Pacquiao. I will continue to be Mike Pacquiao. My guest today is Ian Cron. The Best Speech Podcast is edited by Leisha Otieno and our music from
1: Jonah Ramey. Until next time, my friends, do good things out there.